sometimes you get to a point in motherhood where you're like, nobody's appreciating me, nobody's listening to me, I'm trying to do all this stuff, da 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 Middle school is when literally hell just takes over your child. No one is going to give you space as a mother. Do you think it's appropriate for people to comment on someone else's <laughs> parenting? Thea, I'm laughing, y'all, because Thea turned her video off. Adulting can be hard, even scary. Adulting Horror Stories shares intimate tales of adulting fails and insights into how to avoid them. Hello, and welcome to Adulting Horror Stories. I'm your host, Dion, and today I am honored to be joined by Crystal and Thea of Dem Black Mamas podcast. Dem Black Mamas is a trio that centers on the healing, creativity, and liberation of Black mothers. Their podcast focuses on the journey of the mother as opposed to the journey of the children. You can access all the amazing work they do at www.demblackmamas.com. Dot com slash links. Dem spelled D-E-M. How are you guys? Yes. Good. Yes. Thank you for emphasizing yeah. that Dem. That's important that's to important. us. important. Because that's a shout out to African-American vernacular. A lot of people to think it stands folks. for... Right. A lot of people think that it stands for Democrat, but it's, it's Dem as opposed to them. It's Dem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they think it's Democrat Black Mothers. No, no. Good to know call people what they want to be called, and get the website right. <laughs> how are you guys? Um, how is you? <laughs> Why do I have to always go first? <laughs> um, I am centering myself and um, tapping out on motherhood for the remainder of the day. <laughs> That's so cool. I love that for you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you get to the point, well, I don't know, people listen. Sometimes you get to a point in motherhood where you're like, nobody's appreciating me. Nobody's listening to me. I'm trying to do other stuff. Da, 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 da. And that's a cue that, girl, you're doing too much. And you need mm-hmm. to sit down and tap mm-hmm. out and mm-hmm. go somewhere and center yourself and figure out what is making you happy. Because it's like you want everybody else to be happy with you and satisfied with what you're doing. And they're just in their own little world, minding their own little business. So, yeah. So that's where I am today. That's good. I don't know where I am. I'm in, I'm in the multiverse. I'm probably in no less than four or five different thought spaces, mm. spiritual spaces and feeling spaces. So I, I really just want a quiet place to just exist in all those spaces. <laughs> That's what I'm seeking today. Like I, I don't know that I'll get it. I'm hoping by transferring some of this energy to my mama's house. <laughs> that she might give me like a quiet hour to myself to just like be with the last, you know, 24 to 48 hours. Sometimes I just roll over. Like, hey, mom, we ain't seen you. She'd be like, girl, I know what that means. Just come on. <laughs> and so... Um, yeah, so I'm grateful to have her and to have that space, but also the awareness that I am existing in multiple spaces and times and doing good work in those spaces. But I sometimes just want a quiet space to just let that be. So we're both tapping out today? But mine is in a deep way. (laughs) (laughs) 
The shade. I felt like I gave like an a, we gave rain a deep this is what reason. We do. I, feel like I, I feel like I gave a deep reason. No, you did. We gave. We look at our host. We gave range for all people listening. This is what okay. we do. Okay. If we I'm were, not if in Nikisha the... was on here, she'd be like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And it'll be somebody that will identify with that. You know, it's just. I'm not in the multiverse. I'm just I, in this universe. My bad. You're actually not. But we can talk about that later. Okay. okay. You're in all the verses. <laughs> How are you? This is your podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to talk to you guys. You know, it's been one of my goals to just bring a more and more diverse set of guests on and getting three parents willing to talk. Well, two parents. <laughs> Now's a good time to mention. Um, I said Dan Black Mamas is a trio. There is a third mama, mm-hmm. Nakisha. She could not make it. Yeah. She had a conference today, so she couldn't make it. Yeah. But we'll make sure we sprinkle her in here. There we go. So to get you guys here, I'm super proud. I hope that you both have your opportunities to check out from parenting and transition <laughs> that potentially childish energy to other <laughs> caretakers if possible. Yes. Yes. Ashe, I accept that. Before we start, would you like to tell the audience a little bit more about yourselves. Thea, I went first with a how are you? <laughs> My name is Thea Monier. I am a Leo. We should know that up front. I focus a lot on my company, which is Marley IO. Marley IO has a lot of offerings. One is Shaping the Shift podcast, which is the podcast that I, I do solo in addition to doing Den Black Mama's podcast. Hmm podcast focuses on navigating change and like embracing change. And I also, through that company, run the Black of the Brain, which is a decolonizing mental health cohort and collective that I absolutely adore. We also have done the Free Joy Experience with Ebony Janice Moore. I am running the Joy Center Living Experience, which is a cohort experience for eight months focused on how to live a joy, a sustainable joy-centered life. And all of our approaches use joy as a weapon against systemic oppression. So when we talk about joy, we're not talking about it in a very passive, cute t-shirt way. We're talking about it as a tool for liberation. Um, and so we have all types of people come to that. And then we also do Hold Us Sacred Retreats, which is one of our most exciting offerings, which is I take people to the Red Sea and hold space as an Oya priestess. I practice the Ifa tradition and use you know both that and nature to create kind of a transformational rebirth experience that I'm really, really love and I'm excited about. It's really about, can we hold ourselves sacred? So most of us are waiting to get free or while we're waiting to get free or while we want to be treated as sacred, we actually don't know what that feels like or what that looks like as a lifestyle, as a way of being and existing. And so all the holder sacred work challenges us to start that work while we are in societies that don't hold us sacred, but also to transport us to places that do hold us sacred and offer that experience. And so that's me. My website's at theamoye.com and all that stuff is available. I'm an author, a writer, a poet, all the things. Did I do well, Crystal? Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> you know. Because Crystal I mean, was like, girl, you didn't say this. And I'm like, did I, did I, I catch mean, no, it off? I think you did good. Okay. okay. I'm like, girl, who am I? Um... So I am Crystal Tenille Irby. I'm a powerful, transformative, creative being. At my core, I'm a creative. Everything that I do, every relationship that I have is rooted in creativity. 
I create uh, work that centers Black motherhood, uh, specifically Black mothers um, in the South. I am a mother of four, and I am the executive producer of Dim Black Mamas podcast. I'm also the founder and director of Creators Well, which is a nonprofit organization committed to retreats, creative workshops, creative experiences for Black girls ages 12 to 19 living in South Carolina. And I also am a trained doula, but I'm not practicing right now. I'm working more in advocacy for Black mothers. So all of my work centers creativity and Black motherhood. And I am um, definitely a child of the South, (laughs) the Black South. The black <laughs> part, the black South, there's differences. I get that. Yeah. You got me thinking about future episodes because there's one on, there's topics I've been considering. One is sort of um, related to joy, sort of the feeling you can get mm-hmm. into sometimes that just life has no meaning in a way. Mm-hmm. That you're, you're just, you know, mm-hmm. marching forward because there isn't much other choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. similarly, another one on hobbies and that balance. I kind of talk mm-hmm. about it every time. Whenever I end a season, I do sort of a season recap of like what I'm proud of, what I want to do next, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Of, um, the balance. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Podcasting horror stories, podcasting success stories. They're, those are like literally the episode mm-hmm. titles. But the balance to find between having a hobby that lets you be creative that you can just enjoy right versus mm-hmm. monetizing it because we live in a society that's constantly getting more expensive and why would you spend 3 hours doing something you don't need to do yeah like chores and things like that and not be making money doing it in this hustle culture so um mm-hmm. may get invited back one day well, that's a that's a that's a decolonizing joy conversation, right? Because hobbies yeah. are about exploration, experimentation, not having to have everything perfect. So when you think about that, that really is a conversation about decolonizing, right? Like really understanding that there's activity and purpose in doing things that have no necessary set outcome, but that all of that is about exploration and sustainability of joy, but also of self. Like how do I know who I am if I don't try different things. And if I don't know, you know, that's decolonizing it from capitalism, from whiteness and all these different things. And that's actually how we find out what gifts we have and don't have. So in this society, we've been taught to do a job, do a thing, you are a thing and be that thing till you die. And that's actually so anti-nature and anti-person that it's a form of oppression for sure. And that's also an important part of creativity because um, a lot of times we we turn creativity into um, a business and there's creative practice and then there's the business of Hollywood, yeah. right? And so when you don't understand the difference between the two, you can begin to develop a hostile relationship with your creativity Mm -hmm. and exploration and having hobbies, like Thea said, that have no attachment to outcome, no attachment to, to making money actually expands your creativity. So when creatives find themselves at a block, it's like, well, you're not necessarily blocked. You haven't poured into yourself and you don't Mm -hmm. have any inspiration. And the Mm -hmm. way that you get inspiration is you live life. Mm-hmm. You live life, yeah, you you, you go out, you explore, you see things, not for 
a capitalistic return on investment, but for a return on self. Yeah. Thank you for telling the audience about yourselves. Getting into the episode, today we'll be talking about parenting. It's a commitment that can last up to 18 years. Oh no, much longer. It's complicated and ever-changing as our world changes. And as a result, I wanted to discuss what I think are some of the most difficult aspects with people who have years of wisdom on the subject. <laughs> Why is that funny? Okay. <laughs> oh, you'll see. Oh, okay. You'll see. Keep going. You'll Keep see. Keep going. Uh, you'll see. There's going to be so much. You When you're editing, you're like, do I want to keep this in? <laughs> Should I keep this in? If this is my first three-hour episode, so be it. <laughs> it probably will be. But before we start, I do want to address the elephant in the room. I am currently not a father. There are no fathers mm-hmm. being interviewed. <laughs> I tried to get the host of a podcast about being a father to come on the podcast, but was unsuccessful. Oh, I have one for you. Oh, you? I will give you one. Awesome. Yes, my husband. I am down. <laughs> okay, I will give him your information. Audience, look for that episode a couple months down the line. While Thea has so graciously agreed to help me find a guest, I'll still put out there, if you are a father out there listening or know someone who you think would have good insight on parenting from the father's side, slide into my DMs or email me and let me know. I am happy to do a part two. <laughs> That's awesome. So the way I normally do the episode is I share an embarrassing story of me having trouble with adulting <laughs> and then my guest shares one. As I am currently childless, or at least, you know, no known children out there. Um, no, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's good. I'm kidding. That's good. Good. It's important inclusive. though. That's inclusive. I appreciate that. Are you earth sign? Huh? I, I think I'm air. Are you earth? I'm Aquarius. Oh, oh that's I my love rising. Aquarius. That's my I rising. Love Aquarius mm-hmm. people. I love Aquarius. Yeah, it is air. But it is it's air, but it's like it's a different type of air than Gemini mm. and Libra for sure. I appreciate that. Mm. I just know Aquarians I don't really follow the Zodiac too much, but you know, there's no way of like not seeing Zodiac information yeah, out the, there. Yeah. I'm just glad Aquarians generally are not one of the negatively stereotyped signs. I feel like <laughs> Scorpio, <laughs> Gemini are two oh, yeah. of the most like malign signs yeah. out there. <laughs> it's true. It's like it's, it's like true. warning. It's to true. where if you don't know, if you're not tapped into it and you know that, that says something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have both in my life. Yeah. So many. I I hope that they are they are contributing to your life in a positive way. You know what this this is just <laughs> such a, the Aquarian thing is really snapping into place for me. <laughs> Really snapping into place for me. So anywho, because I am currently without child, the only horror stories involving me are the ones that I inflicted on my own parents. (laughs) Without outing myself too much, I have gotten lost for hours walking home from school and my parents Mm. had to come find me. I had multiple stomach viruses when I was younger, often resulting in foul things coming out of me at both ends. I once locked myself in the bathroom and then started freaking out because I didn't know how to unlock the door. And I was a complete nightmare in middle school. Not giving any further context, I was just... I think, personally... What do I always say, Crystal? What do I always say about Crystal? What do I say? Ask Crystal what I say at middle school. What I say? Literally the devil's playground. The yeah. devil's playground. I mm-hmm. middle school 
is when literally hell just takes over your child. You know, they're they're unrecognizable. It's awful. I agree. For everybody. As a former middle schooler, like you can you can be bad, <laughs> you can be a troubled child, a misunderstood child at any time, but I do feel like the most vicious casually vicious, vicious with no like guilt casually vicious casually vicious yes. is good terminology yeah yeah it's a borderline sociopath yeah it's like right there there's like no remorse there's no feelings about it it's just cutthroat in high school yeah. i could still be vicious but i i had a little more of a moral compass i'd feel a little bit bad yeah something comes Middle yeah. school yeah something clicks in yeah they yeah they level out like kids level out like 15 and a half 16 yeah that's what i was telling you i just tell parents to survive till that point yeah and as a parent you have to know that like i mean even sometimes i forget even knowing it though is just yeah that's what i'm saying no yeah but you have to uh remember it's developmental but but yeah Yeah. you have to remember it's developmental and not personal which is very hard that is so difficult difficult and that you're still legally responsible for you're them. legally so, responsible you know, and that someday right home. and that someday <laughs> this person is going to be an adult and even if what you're saying right now isn't sinking in you have to act as though it will be it'll come back up later yeah it's tough it's tough those years are tough so in spite of all that i consider myself to be the least difficult of all of my siblings me too. <laughs> right? Same. Twinning. Same, same. And because I know at least one of them is probably going to hear this, I'd like to clarify <laughs> that. Well, if mine hear it, they know it's true. My mom said it. There we go. Because I know at least one of them is probably going to hear this, I'd like to clarify that I stand by that statement and will not entertain <laughs> any further discussion. Dion doubled down. Dion doubled down. down. Yeah. He doubled down. I know... Dion, you are impressive. I'm going to get a text message from someone like, oh, so it's like that? And I'm going to be like, yes, Mm. period. It's like that. Mm. It's Mm. like that. That's the mark of a grown-ass person when they double down. It's also the mark of an Aquarius. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so in terms of me being a horror towards my parents, why did it happen? Because that's what kids do. And Mm -hmm. what did I learn? That I should call my parents more. (laughs) (laughs) But jokes aside, I think I learned being a parent, and in my parents' case, being an immigrant at the same time is extra hard Mm -hmm. because you're learning a new country and a new child. The school system is different. The laws are different. You may not have the same support system that you did back home. Mm-hmm. And living in the U.S. is expensive. So if you're the child of immigrants, as much as I'm mm-hmm. sure they get on your nerves at times, a.k.a. all the time, give them a little grace, just a little. Mm-hmm. So that's me. Wait, mm-hmm. wait, where where are your parents from? Jamaica. I love, oh. I love, like, I, lo- I love, Caribbean <laughs> I love, like, immigrant folk. parents because, because yes. they, the... the I don't know if it's shade or guilt, but like it's it's different with Black American parents. So I'm Black American. So like if I told my mom like, oh, you know, I want to major in theater. She's like, I mean, I don't know how you're going to make my vote. Okay, whatever. You know, with like <laughs> with Black immigrant parents, they're like. Oh, I have this in the same household. They're like, just go ahead and kill me. I don't understand why you would <laughs> no, want no, me to die. 100%. 
hundred percent. Why would you want me to die? I don't understand. What have I done that you want to kill me? That is literally my my mom is Black American. My dad is Afro Panamanian by way of Barbados. Now he was the, he was the youngest. He was the baby, so he was a little less like that. But when I'm around the aunties, it's very much like when I was going to lock my hair. Why do you want to be nappy like that? Why would you like to like no 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 nothing like you know. But then if you tell them you want to write and be creative, it's like, you're not going to make any money. But then they want you to perform at the church. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the barbecues. I had a friend who she had, she was like, can you, for her graduation, she was like, she's going to tell her parents that she wasn't going to med school, that she was oh. actually like going to get her master's, right? And she's like, I want you to just be there with me. And I was like, girl, why? You know, I, why? And so she sits down. She's like, I have to tell you, you know, I've decided mm. not to go to med school. I am going to grad school. I'm going to get a PhD, but I'm not going to be a medical doctor. And that is when I saw her, her mom was like, it's okay. I'm ready to die. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, like literally, literally, literally. What? And then, you know, she was like, well, you know, this is my friend. You know, she's following her dreams. And I was like, don't put me in this. And her, her dad goes, where are you from? And I said, oh, you know, I'm from South Carolina. He's like, you like your people. I was like, oh, my people, we just go back to here. And so like, like the United States, he's like, she could do that. She's a black American. That's what they do. Yeah. That's you. what they do. <laughs> you cannot. No, no. And, and like you said, there's a lot of sacrifice. Yeah. In immigrants to the United States, there's so much pain and grief and loss. You know, I would say the Caribbean probably has some of the least suicide rates, right? Who you buy the water, your food is fresh. Like, you know, life is good. There's challenges in certain spaces for sure. But my point is like they, they live in a different time and mm-hmm. understanding about what life should Definitely like when it comes to like. time. They live in a different... Time, but also yeah. like, life is meant to be loved and, and enjoyed. Like in Panama, you work so that you can love and enjoy things, not so that you can just keep working, but you, you do it so you can enjoy your family's company and go do things and, and enjoy life, not just to work to work, you know? So coming here is such a very very different mentality. And they do it for a payoff. Like they want the, you know, the payoff. So well, because it's yeah. a, now I will say America, what I've learned in traveling is having a way to go from the bottom to the top. Mm-hmm. It, it, it exists. What mm-hmm. a lot of immigrants don't realize is it's harder by color. They we're mm-hmm. not making that up as black Americans. They still by, I think second or third generation, black immigrants not even are second, in the same category not even second, as third black generation. Americans. The next right. generation. They're, they're noticing that mm-hmm. they're not that th- what they now that's not true for Asian families It's not true for white immigrants. But for those groups, they can come and they do build wealth. But for a lot of black immigrating families, they do not see that same level sustainability. of sustainability. Like they, they are dealing with racism for the first yeah. time. They are yeah. encountering it for the first yeah. time. So I have a lot of compassion. You know, I do. I feel, also, though, for the. There's like, like you said, change in family structure. Maybe both parents have to work now. You were used to certain food and meals. All that's different. And then your kid turns around and get this little American mindset of, I just want to be free to do blah, blah, blah. Like that shit is not, that's not on the brochure. You understand? That's not what we signed up for. It's Atlanta Opportunities. It didn't say you was going to brainwash my kid into like being a dreamer. We came here, don't be Filipino. We came here to be nurses. Like we came here to be, they, they, they come with very specific agendas. No, you know? yeah. And I've worked it has with these a families. Science. Like it has to be a science. Working with first gen families. Engineer. They come with a very yeah. specific yeah. idea of what yeah. the output looks like. Like and so yeah. you know, for that kid though, 
they're being raised in a culture that says, you know, What's your, dream? your happiness is important. And, da, 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 da. and they're coming from tradition and duty. And it's, yeah. a, it's a lot on that family. I do have a lot of compassion for that. And in the midst of that, you try to figure out who your favorite is and not use drugs. <laughs> it's, just too much. it's just too much. It's just too much. But I think it's funny because it's not my, it's not, it's not my family. You know what I'm saying? Like if I yeah. was going through that shit, it would be hard. You know what I'm saying? But when All her right. mom said, it's okay, I'm ready to die now. I was like, <laughs> oh. That's a hard deal. I would have students, students I mean, the, would be the, like their in guilt hardcore trips. depressive yeah. spirals in my office about, I don't want to do this thing, but I can't tell my family. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it was like a death. It was like yeah. a death. Yeah. So do you want to, I just, there's your, <laughs> how yeah, do I say I'm this? Sorry. I'm going to tell you, not even how do I edit this? I'm, I'm good at keeping most of this in. I'm going to tell you about the, the changing pressures of a Caribbean family. Mm. When my mother mm. was um, younger, like before she ever had kids or anything, she wanted to be a flight attendant. But especially in Jamaica at the time, it wasn't really an established profession. And so my grandfather didn't support her in doing it. He said, like, that's not a real profession. You should be a nurse. So my mom eventually became a nurse, got into nursing school. And I think the time when she announced that she got into nursing school was the first time in her life that he hugged her. Oh, wow. 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 Um, he's he's loving wow. it. He was. He's passed now. But he was loving in his own yeah. other ways. But just yeah, that yeah, wasn't of yeah. one of them. Affection, right? That's a that's a that's something that's learned, you know. And he wasn't given that. He wasn't given that. So he didn't mm-hmm. he didn't have it. He didn't have mm-hmm. love to give in that particular way. But yeah, my parents now they actually didn't pressure us necessarily to be mm. any particular career. But they did, when I say they did a good job, I think they cleaned up well because without <laughs> much effort, they got an engineer in me. Ah. My brother is a personal trainer turned soon to be lawyer. He's in law school. And oh, wow. um, two of my sisters are nurses. So mm-hmm. I'm like, with, 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 with minimal effort, you still, you still cleaned up you nice. You still got... Yeah. Something, something something was in the room. Yeah. Or yeah. the curry. My bad. <laughs> something was in the curry. <laughs> something was in the curry. I will say, mm-hmm. I think it was my dad when I was like considering becoming an engineer. I I admit I don't I don't know where, I don't know how, but I was focused on like the money. And so I was like, I would consider mm-hmm. doing nuclear or electrical or chemical or civil. And his only comment ever on like my career choices was like nuclear, electrical, and chemical sound dangerous because of what you'd be working with. Maybe you shouldn't do those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, I, we we were given a, a decent amount of freedom. That's good. That's good. That's, That's beautiful. Good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. That's good. That was me. That was my, um, you know, my spiel in a sense. Now to the real meat of this episode, I have 10 questions that I think cover some of the more difficult and controversial aspects of parenting and i'm hoping that them black mamas can share their take on how to address these questions and really take some of the anxiety away that comes with Mm. being a parent so without further ado let's get into these questions 
Okay. The first one will be, do you have any parenting horror stories of your own? For the first, like, for my preschool, my kids went to, it was an all-Black school. Like, I was like, all-Black, no matter what. So then when they went to public school, one of the things that I would always ask them whenever they were talking about a kid from school or whatever was, like, you know, already black. what race are they, you know? And so my now 13-year-old was having a party and, you know, now you have to invite all the kids to the party in the class, right? Mm-hmm. And so his teacher called me because she said, when I gave out the invitations, he also wanted everybody to let my mom know your race when you RSVP. She... <laughs> did you? Did you ask him to do that? No, I did not. But because I always ask what was people's race, he was like, yeah. So when you RSVP, make sure you say your race because she always wants to know what race people are. And so his teacher, she emailed and, you know, she's a black lady and she was like, yeah, I, you know, I get it. But <laughs> what you should have said was it's going to be an educational lesson on how separate <laughs> but equal is not actually separate but equal. You might. And so the black kids get a red carpet entrance in the front door. <laughs> the white kids have to come in mm. through the back yeah, I was just like, ooh, ooh. Like, that's how <laughs> I know was. I to but he, he was like, you know, why do you always ask that? And I would just say, you know, because I need to know, like, what I'm dealing with, what I'm going to be encountering. So so that that's kind of a horror <laughs> story, I think. But definitely my birth story was just, like, I thought I was going to have, like, this birth, like one of the ones you see on IG Live or IG, you know, I thought that that's what my mother, I thought that, that was what my pregnancy and my birth would that's be scary. like. And it was just grimy as fuck. Mm. Like it was just the grimiest thing I've ever experienced. And it was because of a lack of knowledge about birthing and pregnancy. And um, I ended up having to have a C-section, which is where the horror comes in at. Mm. So... <laughs> When you have a C-section, they come in and, you know, they they prepare your body from the waist down, right? And so they give you an epidural to completely relax your body. Mm-hmm. And when that part of your body is completely, <laughs> completely relaxed, you know, things are relaxed. And so, like, I just started, like, passing gas and I couldn't <laughs> control it. It was horribly embarrassing. And then, you know, they also have to like shave your body like they would do for any part of your body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had been pregnant for nine months. And so wasn't nobody trying to mm-hmm. get the bikini wax, you know what I'm saying? And when that nurse lifted up that gown and started to shave, my mom was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe you have not taken care of that. You could have done something. You could have went to go see the Asians. They would have handled that. And I was just like... <laughs> and the nurse, of course, was Asian. And it's just like all the things. So I feel like from... <laughs> I feel like like it just started out with the horror story, like from job. So that was the parenting horror story. I'd like to come out and say I'm pro... Having your pubic hair be however you prefer it to be. I love that. I feel like that too. I don't like there'd be no shaming. And if you could have seen me, like I was 
ginormous and just absolutely miserable. And so it was just horrible. And I was just like, oh, can we, at this point, I'm just like, just get the baby out. Can we just get this over with? Like, this is, this has turned out to be nothing, nothing (laughs) that I envisioned. Absolutely nothing. Just get the baby out whatever way you can. Mm. Yeah. I will say you don't need the epidural for that to happen. My mom has been in situations where um, I think a woman was maybe being driven to the hospital or something, or like she was like close to being due, but not quite. They um, Mm -hmm. stopped at, I think a grocery store. And it's like, while they went in the grocery store, the pregnant woman was in the car, started going into Mm -hmm. labor and it was a wrap for that car. Well, because it's all yeah. in the same yeah. section. It's all in the yeah. same section. And all of those muscles, I'm, I'm a doula now, so like I know now, but all of those muscles have to relax. So often when a mom can't relax enough, they often tell her to like sit on the toilet because it's it's uh, it's like muscle memory. Mm-hmm. So you automatically mm. relax, you know, when you do that. So it's all the same. I mean, it happens, but I just didn't know it then. And I didn't want six people in the room witnessing yeah. <laughs> Witnessing that, but yeah, it's a lot. Horror it's very story. vulnerable. Horror story. I'm still healing from that. Still healing. I understand. Still healing. Yeah. How about you, Thea? Horror stories, Thea. <laughs> There's a lot of stories. There's just a lot of stories, and this is a very interesting time to be asked this question. I think I would tell this horror story because it's the least traumatic. It's when I realized that my kids, that there were two of them and one of me. Hmm. That they could like that they could plot against me for the first time. <laughs> they were little. I I don't. I want to say they were like maybe three and one and a half. They're oh they're gosh, I was around Irish then. twins. They're, yeah, yeah. You were. We, it was at the Fresh City House. Okay. And um, you know, it's a weird thing to say because you know they all that sounds very young, three and one and a half. But you can actually leave them for a moment in the right setting. You can. And do something for yourself at that age, as opposed to when they're much younger, mm-hmm. right? So you're kind of feeling like your little first taste of like a little. So I think one was probably three and the other one was like 18 months or like that. Talani started walking very young. She was walking at nine months and she was all talking. She was always trying to catch up with her sister. So they were watching their show. I'm like, great. I'm going to watch Grey's Anatomy because I'm behind. I was keeping up. And they're too quiet for too long. And, and you know that that's actually, that's like mothering horror stories like when you're like oh shit it's too Mm -hmm. quiet right like that's actually like fear (laughs) strikes your heart and i go i don't want to go in a room because just in case everything's fine (laughs) i don't want them to notice that i'm there and i still want to go back to Grey's anatomy so i go around the room but i notice from the room there's like a trail of wrappers Hmm. and i'm and i follow the trail to the kitchen refrigerator and i i think i know what it is but i'm like i'm gonna have to open this door i go back to their room i open the door and they're like little rats. They're eating literally every type of cheese that was in that refrigerator. <laughs> like they're eating cheddar cheese, craft singles cheese, shredded cheese. Like they got all the cheese. And I I look at them and I know it's a conspiracy. Like I know it was a planned, co-facilitated strategy, right? And I remember saying to them, I remember like, y'all can be blocked up. And I don't know who you think is going to do with that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who you think. Then you're going to be like, mommy, mommy, my WR, but you did this. I mean, it was like they had, they had done like created like cheese balls out of it. It was a wreck. Every form of cheese that was in the refrigerator. But I remember the scariest part to me was like, oh shit, I got to break up this communication. It done synced up, you know? 
They didn't synced up on me, which means like I got to think differently now. You know, it was just, and it was the beginning of that. It was a season of that actually. It was just plots and ploys, oh, you know, boy. but eventually. I remember that. And she I was, Thea was so serious about Grey's Anatomy. Like she would stand up, watch it. Like it was literally like my thing standing right now. up, she would watch Grey's Anatomy. Like that's how like serious she was about it. So it was like It was all her, I had, you know? It was, all, it was, it was like mom. her thing. Yeah. It was all I had. Yeah, I remember that. I, I couldn't go that. to the club. I you know, that. couldn't go to the club. Couldn't do that. that. So yeah. I was watching yeah. Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. There's someone I know who when she was younger, I don't know what it is now. It's some... I want to say South American fruit, maybe with seeds, but um, she just ate a ton of them, like an ungodly amount of mm. them <laughs> and got blocked up. And her dad had to like pick them out. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, who you think <laughs> going to be doing all that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you'll be sad. Uh, yeah. Okay. Thank you for sharing those. Mm. The moral, though, is make sure you get a doula if you're pregnant. So then you'll know, like, everything to expect once you're in labor. That's the moral of my story. The moral of my story is divide and conquer. (laughs) I support both those responses. (laughs) My next question is, how do you overcome the anxieties that come with trying to create the best life for your children? So on my end, you know, I feel like I've seen parents, you have to read a bunch of pamphlets, childproof your home, your house that you've lived in safely for five years is a whole death trap. You need to get not just car seats, but the right car seat. You think this cute little toy or walker you played with when you were younger is perfectly fine, (laughs) but now in the modern day, it's a death trap too. How do you sort of like (laughs) do those things, create a good life for your child, but not constantly feel like you're a failure or like two seconds away from messing something up. Yeah. I think, you know, the first part that you're talking about, like in terms of um, physical safety, like when they're a baby, I mean, we have four children and um, two of them are my stepkids who came to live with us. One came to live with us two weeks after we were married and the other came to live with us five years into our marriage. He finished eighth grade in uh, high school Hmm. with us. So with them, I didn't have those moments, you know, when they were babies. But with the babies, you know, honestly, I think it's a little bit easier in terms of their physical safety because you have concrete information, right? So I can go look up, you know, the latest car seat. What are the rules and regulations for a car seat? They even have like car seat check dates at the police station where they can check your car seat and all of that. I can look up the latest toys. If if I'm feeding my child baby food or formula, there's going to be an alert out if something's wrong with it. You know what I'm saying? And so you definitely have to make choices, but there's a little bit more concrete information when they're young in terms of their physical safety, right? Mm-hmm. For me, at least, that was never my anxiety point, child-proofing my home and all of that. The anxiety particularly for Black parents, comes in the question of what is safety? What does safety mean? And accepting that safety is relative, depending on who you ask, particularly when it comes to Black parents. And this, for me, honestly, I had to kind of release the idea of safety as a parent. And it came in particular when uh, Eddie Long was accused of child molestation. Eddie Long and Sandusky, 
at Penn State, mm-hmm. where it, those things happen really close together. And mm-hmm. I realized, like, those children trusted those people, but the parents trusted those people as well. And so predators not only groom children, they groom parents. Mm-hmm. And parents are just looking for the best for their children, trying to fulfill a need for their children. And I had to kind of release the idea of safety and embrace the idea of bravery. Because if I'm constantly thinking about safety, my anxiety is going to be sky high in a white supremacist world. You know what I'm saying? So I had to embrace the idea of bravery and teaching my children how to be brave as opposed to constantly rooting them in fear, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for me, that's when I learned that I don't want a parent from a place of fear, which causes Mm -hmm. anxiety. I want a parent from a place of liberation. I want a parent from a place of joy. I want a parent from a place of creativity, right? So whenever that anxiety comes up for me, I ask myself, what is the fear? And I have to look at that fear and see the root of it and see the cause of it and decide if I want to move from that space. And that's not an easy thing because Black people getting killed by police, state-sanctioned violence against Black bodies in general, we don't even have to go to killing. We can go to the Black maternal health rate. is a very, very real thing. So I really don't say that lightly. And I don't say that as if it's easy. You really have to constantly ask yourself that question as a Black parent. And what it comes down to is, I really had a happy childhood. I really had a happy childhood and I want my children to have a childhood of, as Thea always talks about, of joy and creativity. And I want them to learn to exist from that space because white supremacy wants to wants them to exist from a place of fear, anxiety, and bondage. And if I'm trying to raise free children, then the first thing I have to do is free myself, which requires healing. A lot of that anxiety is unhealed trauma, right? Therefore, my children can see that. Like I always say, I don't heal for myself. I heal for my children as well so that they can see what healing looks like, so they can see healing tools. And I think that that's a form of generational wealth. We can pass on that healing to our children so that they can learn to function from that space as well. So that's how I relieved a lot of that kind of anxiety that came up as a parent for me and creating the best life. And creating the best life for your children means creating the best life for yourself. So you can't encourage your children to dream if you're not dreaming. You can't encourage your children to be free, go see the world if you're not doing that yourself. I like that. How about you, Thea? This is kind of two parts for me because when I was a young parent, when I was starting and I want to meet people where they could be in their journey. I thought I had to do everything perfect, you know? And I, I don't know if this is true for Black fathers, but for, for mothers, you feel like everyone's watching you. Mm-hmm. If something's wrong, they're going to say it to you. If something is wrong with the child, if something's wrong with the home, if something's wrong with the relationship with the other parent, they're going to say it's you. And so it's, the anxiety is it's actually even bigger than the child themselves. It's the perception you as your the, the world's view of you changes. Your identity changes because the world now views you within a certain context and a certain idea. And before that, you were just a person like other people. But now you're this thing that people have 
a zillion thoughts and ideas and opinions about. And so you're just trying to sort of survive and navigate. Like a lot of what's motivating you isn't even child driven, Mm -hmm. right? You love Mm -hmm. your child, of course, but you're also trying to navigate and define this thing that came to you in a very prescribed way. So you are in the very, very early stages of defining motherhood for yourself while trying to cultivate a relationship with this new being, getting a zillion opinions on what's best practice and what's not best practice in a society that really ultimately, I know it may look on the surface like they offer, but where it matters and where it counts, there's very little support for parents and mothers. There's very, it's like, don't have them if you can't take care of them. And that's really not the attitude that, that's not an Afrocentric attitude. That's not an indigenous way of thinking about children. Children are a part of our world, not just the parents' world, right? They are part of our, they're ours. And so never, ever, I think in the history of the world have parents felt so isolated with the experience of bringing in life and taking care of life. It was truly a communal responsibility, but never have you ever seen it be more isolated than you do right now. It's particularly in the West um, Mm -hmm. and in the United States. So some of the pieces that Crystal's referring to, I gave it all up. There was no, the only way I felt like I could fill those shoes was to leave the other shoes behind. I couldn't be who I was. That had to all come second to this new identity. And I tried that for a long time and it made me really good at creating conditions under which my children could feel safe and maybe even thrive, but it wasn't sustainable because I was not thriving. And so there had to come these moments where I had to come into a redefining of this journey that included me. And I'm still doing that. I'm still still learning that. I can hear even good news for myself. And my first thought is like, how will they feel about this? How will this impact them? You know, it's, it's a conflict that I still currently live with because it's one I helped shape by what I didn't know coming into this. The second way I want to answer that though, is if I were to do it now, if I were to be starting that journey new, I would recognize that we, me and this child had made an, a sacred agreement, a sacred spiritual agreement to be in each other's lives and that they chose me to be their mother because of who I am, not to become some other version, but because of who I am and that they want to contribute to my life as much as I'm contributing to theirs. And so I think there'll be more of a coexistence as opposed to a feeling like I had to choose between identities. I think if I were to come into it now, I would have way less anxiety because I would feel like we chose this together, not just this is me and it's all on me, right? Um, so I think I would tell parents that there has to be freedom for you and the child in that parenting. You also have to embrace the idea of death. You have to remember that life is fragile and there's no guarantees and that yes, you could lose your child and yes, your child could lose you. And so let that shape your interactions. Let that knowing make it make you decide maybe to not say that thing or to maybe, you know, have a different conversation or choose a different path. Let the reality, as opposed to being scared that something mm-hmm. could happen, let it be like, yeah, shit could happen. So I need to make the most of every single interaction and moment. And I also need to not let fear prevent me from letting my child have a natural organic exploration and experimentation with their life. I have to trust that they 
will gravitate and know what feels right for them, but that requires some space to experiment and fail and fall and make mistakes and it gets ugly and it gets really, really fucking messy for everybody, but it is supposed to be messy. If it's clean and paint by the numbers, it's colonized and it's not the right fit. It needs to be messy. It needs to look different than the person next to you. And if you're, if that's the most important space to protect, not you know, whether or not this will last forever, because it won't, we know that not whether or not it's perfect to the outside world, but whether or not in this space, we are able to co-liberate and coexist and do so free from fear and judgment. So that that's what I would offer at this point. But I definitely understand and have a lot of grace for that, that starting point of the journey. I also want to say like, kind of concretely what I what I mean by being brave. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when we think about safety, we think about putting like a hard shell around our children and putting all of these safety protocols into place, right? But when I talk about being brave, I'm talking about building a home in which your children can share with you. Because if harm does come to my children, this is what the Sandusky and uh, Eddie Long thing taught me, that if harm does come to my children, I want them to be brave enough to say something, to tell me, to feel as though they live in a home where they can say that they've been hurt. And that first starts with the parent-child relationship. And it doesn't always feel good when your child tells you that you have hurt them, when your intention was to be good, but you have to make space for that. So, because that's teaching your child to come forward when they feel as though, you know, they've been harmed and not to accept harm as normal and think that it's their fault if they could not prevent it. (laughs) <laughs> no, there's a child that might there's a child that might get harmed there's a child that might get harmed forget everything we just said harm is about to befall this child I, 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 I think it's being handled very gracefully yes but you see how it goes though because how many times has she had to open that mm-hmm. door and she and she has said she recording see how it goes you see you see how it happened this is the making of an ass beating <laughs> I but want to I do not it spank it my just, children she does not spank she doesn't spank. Thanks not to me. My children. I think Real that's thanks talk. to me. Real that's talk. Thanks to me. <laughs> that's thanks to Thea. Real talk. Awesome. Real talk. It could have gone another path. And the, the one, two countdown is like, okay, so then if I get up, then I'm going to put some rules in place that you really going to have a hard time with. So you can make the choice before I get to this number. Yeah. Yeah. I do not support spanking either. So yeah. I'm happy no, we, was, was a, we a, didn't spank either. It was a hard journey, Dion. It was a I'm, hard no journey. Because I remember she was like, you have girls. You cannot talk to me about. It was a hard yes. journey. It was a hard but like, journey. But there's a way. <laughs> it's a hard journey. Well, because, well, we could talk about that later. But, okay. but spanking yeah. is short term. It's, it's very, it's very yeah. limited. It's just, and so to me. To me, if shit is effective, I do have this analytical mind that's partly like, I like effectiveness mm-hmm. and I like sustainability. Like those two things are great for me. So if it's a short-term solution, it's about the parent not being able to manage their own emotions yeah. or them being like frustrated or whatever. But if the long-term solution would be to figure out why the thing is happening, to do the work, to co-create a strategy, but that's more patience than if you work in job to job and you just need him to stop doing this shit right now, but, but you One, spankings are rarely followed up with that conversation about why I needed you to pause. And if it was just to get attention, you could do this and then they would notice. You don't have to beat nobody for them to notice. Um, And if if it's just about, or you can make a loud noise. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do to 
sparked somebody's attention, but it's just not effective long term. It what it what it means is somebody would be required to be on them like that in that kind of pressure and that kind of violent way their whole life in order for them to do well when they could really just develop the understanding that just takes more time. But I and I have compassion. I I I know the effectiveness of why. I also understand how the system creates scenarios through poverty and through a bunch of situations where parents don't have the language, the bandwidth, the skill set, a lot of things that their fear of keeping their child safe require, you know, makes them go physical first. And that's and that's the real thing. Like your your question was about like the anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. So that anxiety really comes from the fear of your child being harmed. And so for me, spanking was completely rooted in that fear. Like I need you to get this lesson. Mm-hmm. Cuz if you don't get this lesson, like it could cost you your life. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. if you don't if you don't understand how to talk to authority, if you don't respect authority, like it could literally cost you your life. And I had to realize like, you're not parenting from a place of liberation then. You're parenting from a place of fear. And like Thea said, I have a lot of compassion for that because, you know, I I would say there was a time, but we are living in a time where your kid's life is on the line. Like I can touch Jim Crow. Like my mom went to a segregated high school. Her class was the first class to graduate as an integrated class. Like I can literally touch Jim Crow, right? So that's very real for me. I had an uncle who had to flee the South because he mm-hmm. was dating this white woman and she said that he raped her. Like that's oh, wow. real. I, yeah, mm-hmm. like, I, like, yeah, like I get that. So I, I understand where that came from. Mm-hmm. You know, I under I understand where I that's... love that you said you can touch it because I do think absolutely I do think sometimes the younger generations don't think of it as close as it is. You know, the 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 folks who lived through Obama, they were babies th- mm-hmm. during Obama. Like you know, the fact you say I can touch my mother. It's these choices, these opportunities to process emotion, to be with emotion. Is why I like encourage when I would work with college students, like I would be like, you know, you have a lot of language. You have the luxury of language. You have the privilege of language that your grandparents and your parents did not have. No one was that even that your ability to self-diagnose often incorrectly. I just want to put that out there as a practitioner. <laughs> it's not the best idea to self-diagnose. It's not healthy. Um to, to flood the world with all this language with no context, right? Like there's a context within a context, which is that they were surviving real, physical, tangible aspect. We've, we've had a lot of, well, depending on where we are, because Chris, Crystal still lives in the belly of the beast. I live in California. So <laughs> depending on where you are, if you in Florida and Texas it's real, Dion. and South Dion, Carolina. Dion, where you live at? I live in well, North you don't Carolina. Wanna, you Trust me, I know. So you know, Dion. But y'all are, but Dion, Dion, y'all a little bit better. You know y'all think y'all better than the South. You know y'all think y'all better than South Carolina. You know y'all be like, I'm from North Carolina, not South Carolina. This is a side conversation. I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. I was afraid oh. to come to North Carolina because oh. it's North Carolina. <laughs> but I knew mm-hmm. in the back of my mind I would never go live it wasn't in South, South Carolina, Carolina <laughs> because South Carolina was the first state to secede. To, to secede to you! We say that every time. Every, I we say that every you. time. We say that never every time. She says that we the first to secede to you. Never That's forget. It. That's the best. Although... If we could recap it now, Florida might be like, bitch, we beat you to it. Because Florida is go- is a run for their money. But I-, I say that with that context, right? That like, especially out here, you know, I had to work with these students about like, you need to be a little, you need to, like the reason you're able to even form the words 
about my mama shouldn't have whooped me and this shouldn't happen and this person shouldn't be drinking is because they survived it somehow. And it's very real for them. And you you can't take this big academic language that, that's being shoved on you through Instagram and take that to your grandmama. That's not okay. You're going to have to find a way to say, this is how I felt when this happened. You're going to have to be vulnerable and use real words with your real grandmama or your real mama about how you felt. You can't go say to them, you gave me PTSD and anxiety and ADHD because you did. They're not, what the fuck? They're going to be like, are you alive? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the baseline. That was right. the baseline less than two generations ago, right? Are you alive? Were you in jail? Did you do the thing, right? So they're like, we did good, right? I say all that because there's such, there, there can be generational disconnect especially with all this like new language around mental health. And then it creates a superiority complex that is like not cool. And it's very white. It's very colonized because we know our elders are walking vessels of so much information that we should be tapping into. And we know we can't apply all of it because right. some of it's outdated. Right. right? So we, yeah. we're, our job is to take it in, filter, <laughs> be humble, be grateful you know, gently share our experiences without shaming, judgment, or blaming and create some, that generational healing you were talking about, Crystal. And some of that anxiety is also rooted in, you know, the previous generation. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that my family is like all hunky-dory with the way that I chose to, I'm choosing to raise my children. You know, I mean, a simple thing is like my firstborn child, you know, I I didn't give them cow's milk was a thing. It was a A thing. thing. It's a thing, you know what I'm saying? And that's like, I'm not even talking about spanking. I'm, 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 I'm talking about mom, just buy the almond milk. You know what I'm saying? Just buy the almond milk. From a mom who had a child, me, who was allergic to cow's milk and could not drink hmm. formula. I had to drink plant-based formula in the 70s oh, wow. when it wasn't mm-hmm. even really a thing. So, so it's not like I'm talking to a person who did not know, but what, <laughs> <laughs> but what they hear is, oh, I did something wrong. My way right. wasn't good enough, right? And mm-hmm. so what I had to tell my mom was just because I'm doing it different don't mean you did right. it wrong. You did it with the yeah. information that you had. I have new yeah. information now. I have new language now. The world has changed. Yeah. So I, you know, my- And my, I will say some shit ain't still changed. works great. So some of that anxiety that parents feel about doing it right, doing it wrong comes from how the previous generation did it. And you have to be willing- to heal so that you're not responding to the previous generation from a place of trauma, yeah, but from a place of healing so that you can have conversations. Because now my mom is the healthiest person in our family and you better not come to her house with cow's milk. And if you mm. got anything coming from a cow, it better be grass fed and organic. 13 years ago, that wasn't the case. Right. Yeah. But so I you know, get to model that. Right. Mm-hmm. But you have to come from a place of healing. So some of the anxiety that parents feel about safety is, especially as black parents, you know, an older generation might say, you could do that if you want to, but wait today encounter the police or wait today encounter these white folks. You know, so yep. so some of it comes from there. And that's where that healing comes in. And being the youngest of four who always went along to get along, then caused no problems, had to be brave enough to say, Well, I'm not gonna do it like that. And, you know, hear the little jokes like, oh, she does everything organic. Her, his socks are organic. He can eat his socks. You know, like things like that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's just to be like, okay, people, 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's evolution. Yeah. yeah. Every generation, we should be evolving, evaluating what works, archiving, and being grateful for the things that we no longer. Uh, archiving is a language that Akila S. Richards uses specifically around this because mm-hmm. uh, Eben- Ebony Janice uses archives as well. But this this specific language I've heard used by Akila S. Richards, which applies to like family. She's mm-hmm. also, her parents are Jamaican. She's Jamaican. Mm-hmm. And so she talks about how like, well, how can I hold what they offered me? Mm-hmm. How can I take the time to sift through it? archive what doesn't apply doesn't mean it will never apply again either right because what goes around comes around so in a couple generations i may need that shit again Mm -hmm. so instead of like just throwing it out which is what whiteness would do i can archive it thank it, have gratitude and then i can i can apply and continue to evolve some of the other strategies that they did apply And, and i can create my own that's my that's why I need to be experimental. So that's why, you know, and I can influence backwards that way, right? So it yeah. doesn't just go time doesn't just move one way. Similarly, I don't practice, you know, I'm not Christian, I practice Ifa. And so when I first started, my dad is Panamanian, so he was Catholic and Christian, and my mom was Christian. None neither of them were like super religious people, but we we knew that, you know, I always went to parochial schools. I'm the first in my in my family to introduce Orishas, to introduce the concept of Orishas, to introduce the concept of Ori. And, and now my children um, talk and they know those names, they know that language, but also we heal, we heal forwards and backwards because I've been able to tell my mom things about our ancestors that she didn't know because of that. And I've been able to do healing work with ancestors because it's just been a beautiful exchange. But the key is to stay open and non-judgmental, right? That anxiety about doing it right. It's not about doing it right. It's about doing what works for you, mm-hmm. making it sustainable, making it effective for your family line and lineage. And and we do not want, and this is also language from Akila S. Richards, we don't want to colonize our kids. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to... They come here. I think of my nephew a lot because he used to visit me in the spirit world before he came. I saw him. And he's so pure. He's so pure. You know, he does it. He's nonverbal. And everybody, not everybody, but like, you know, schools want to change that about him. I actually love that about him. I, I think about everything that happens the moment you start talking and all the expectations and and then how people talk to you, like, and they expect you to listen to everything they have to say. And, you know, there's this all this stuff that comes with being verbal that when I'm he seems to me like one of the most sovereign beings I know. He's such a lesson for me. He's four and what it means to be sovereign and not to feel no kind of way about it. He don't feel no kind of way about the fact that he ain't talking to you. And he don't feel no kind of way about the fact that he's in his little world. And sometimes if you're lucky and if you act right. He will let you come in to his little world and he will let you engage with him. And it's such a treat. You feel like so special. But none of that is true if I colonize him and tell him he has to be something that he's clearly not desiring to be at this particular moment in time. He had a um, recent teen school meeting and all the metrics were based on general education. General education is based on him talking, Mm -hmm. right? So I was like, first of all, there's no metrics for who he actually is. Like, what does success look like for him? What does thriving look like for him? These metrics are based on what you want him to be, but not who he is. They were they were using language that I was very uncomfortable with. And I had to tell them, I said, he's protecting his boundaries. That's his right. And then 10 years later, after you've eroded his boundaries, you're going to send him back to me as a troubled teenager who's looking for validation from outside 
sources because you broke down his bubble. You broke down his world before he had a chance to secure it. You know, and we don't that- think about it that way. We don't think about we don't think of children as sovereign. We don't think of their spirits as whole. We think of them as something that we have to make into something. And once you understand that they have actually and um the healing wisdom of Africa, and it might have been in his book, Maladoma Somme, but it might have been a book about his grandfather. I'm, I can't remember the name right now. But he talked about his relationship with his grandfather. And in his tribe, the relationship between the grandchild and the and the children were the strongest because they were both the closest to heaven, right? One had just came and one was going back. So they had the best conversations. They knew how to engage. Those of us in the middle who were doing the grinding and the working, we were the furthest. We had forgotten. But these two had the magic. And we've already just we brought both up, the elders and the babies, right? The two groups that have the magic are the easiest for us to try to dismiss or colonize because we're the ones in the working area of it, you know? And I think that's something that also has contributed to our anxiety because that that's the rooting. Yeah. That's the base. That's the remembering. That's the tradition, you know? And and some of that anxiety is about hitting those markers, like Thea said, like talking. Well, talking isn't actually the marker, like understanding mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's the thing. And so people associate it with talking because if you if you say it to me, then that's how I know that you understand. That's how I know you understand. But there are there are so many other ways to communicate understanding. So you have to really like dig deep into those markers and and feeling like you're not living up and my child won't have the best opportunities or doesn't have the best life because they're not hitting those markers. You really have to, especially mm-hmm. as a black parent say, well, what does this really stand for? Cause I had a little cousin who did not talk until she was three, mm-hmm. who's a pharmacist now and is literally the doctor in the family. Like whatever is wrong, we call her, you know, and she didn't talk until she was three. I mean, luckily she had a pediatrician who was like, she'll talk when she's ready. Does she understand when you tell them, when you tell her to do this, does she do it? Does she respond to the And like the pediatrician was like, she understands. She just isn't, for whatever reason, isn't ready to talk. But as long as she understands, that is the most important thing. Yeah, I agree. I've, I, was, uh, I was a little caught off guard when you said like people are trying to get your nephew to talk, but you like him as he is. Because I, I would also be in, initially in the camp of, not I don't like I don't think you should force it, but I do think it's a good thing for um you know children to be able to speak. But I like, but I do also take Crystal's point, which is the understanding is definitely more important. Mm-hmm. They can learn to talk. Well, when because ready. if there's no if there's no physical evidence, like if you if they've done the testing and there's nothing physically keeping the child from talking, then we can't rule out the fact that the child has agency over when they talk. And I think it's lazy of us to only have a metric that's based on ableism, Mm -hmm. right? Because not talking means I have to think differently. For them, this is what you were saying, Crystal, like the metrics are based on, I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. I want to make sure you understand what I'm learning. And the only way I can know that is if you tell it back to me, if you regurgitate it back to me, right? You don't want him to talk because he's going to write a sonnet or because he's going to, you want him to talk because you want to verify that he understands what you're putting into him. That is your metric, right? But if you weren't so lazy, you would be able to see through understanding, there's various ways he's showing you all the time that he completely comprehends his world and what's around him. And he's demonstrating brilliance, just not according to your metrics. So why is that particular metric so important to you? Why do you need to hear it that way? 
Why do you need it to be validated that way? And I think that's that's just one example of how it starts with children. They start getting on them so early about control and about conformity. It's just absolutely the most disgusting element, I think, is the way you're rewarded at five years old if you comply and you're on a bad list if you don't. And they can see the distinction. They can see the othering. They can see the consequences. And they're, all their individuality and the uniqueness and the brilliance and the godhood is all just being, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Ifa, plants have high ashe because they don't talk. Trees are some of the wisest things on the planet and have intricate communication systems that are nonverbal. Some of the best things about this planet have nothing to do with language. And honestly, there are some people who learn to talk that you wish that they didn't. <laughs> oh, God. That's the <gasps> truth. Can you imagine? It's some people who you're like, damn, I wish. And it's some people who, who talk and not saying a whole lot of nothing. And and also, again, like you, you as a parent, you really have to remain curious remain curious. You know, Mm -hmm. if a black boy can't talk, if a black boy doesn't like to write, if a black boy doesn't like to read a book, I always say, well, you know, it's like somewhere between 30 and 40% of black boys, they're auditory learners. They like, somehow we learn more auditory than we do like reading. So when people say things like, if you don't want black people to know something, put it in a book. That's very offensive to me, given that we can read for 400 years. That's highly offensive to me, given that our original language was taken from us, given that we mm-hmm. come from a world of, we come from a culture of oral tradition. That's highly mm-hmm. offensive to mm-hmm. me that you put literary ability over oral or oral intake. Tradition. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you really have to stay curious. Like when that anxiety comes up, be curious about it. Be curious mm-hmm. about it. Don't don't be like you're not hitting a mark. Say why is this coming up? What is it coming? Where is it coming mm. from? What is it rooted in? And nine times out of ten, it goes back to enslavement. If if, if you are a descendant of 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 uh, of enslaved people, nine times mm. out of ten, nine but times. If you're not, out of 10. and you're a person of color, you got to look at the colonization factor. When yeah. did you come in contact with Europeans? Because that's mm. also a marker. Nine times out of ten. I have a lot of thoughts, but we're only two questions in. <laughs> No, it's great. I'm learning tons. (laughs) Um, So my third question, and it kind of relates to what you guys were just talking about, people setting different metrics about where your child should be, what your parents thought your kids should eat versus what you think they should eat. And just, you know, the fact that even science, like science of good intentions of Raising children is a continually evolving and improving field. And that Mm -hmm. there's grifters out there that use misinformation Mm -hmm. to get your money or for other nefarious means. How do you Mm -hmm. avoid misinformation when it comes to what is good for or bad for children? And how do you vet parenting and childcare information in general? Mm -hmm. So knowing what I know now. (laughs) I feel like your spiritual life is a super, super, super essential part of your parenting life. I've always been a spiritual person, but I I didn't necessarily have a strong spiritual practice the way I do now. And so you have to have such deep trust in yourself, your instincts, your gut, but also be attuned with your child and their instincts and their intuition, their gut. So for example, 
I know like with Crystal, she had a son who like, didn't really want to eat meat. And she was like, this kid's probably going to be vegetarian. She didn't try to force him to eat meat. She kind of took his lead and watched to see what he gravitated to naturally and what he didn't. So if you were taking in the prescribed idea of it, right, from from different places or different information, you would say, well, they have to eat all these things every day because this is what a balanced thing looks like. But your kid's body is saying, I need more of this, less of this, more of this. And they're naturally gravitating towards it. Like my friend's son is like, we just turned one. They taught him to sign certain things. And so she'll say, do you want this? Do you want this? Do you want this? And he'll say yes or no in sign language, which means he, he, he knows what he's desiring, what he's craving, what he wants. And so I think that is really important because it's like we prepare all the external practical mm-hmm. things and we think about, you know, giving up emotional space and all this stuff, but we really don't think about we are constantly in a white supremacist capitalist society that's teaching us to not trust our gut, not trust our instinct, to trust the advertisement over the instinct. And we're missing the inner knowing and knowledge that we come with and that this child comes with. And so I I, I say that part. Like, I think the only way you're going to get through it, because they're going to keep making products and they're going to be pretty and they're going to be fabulous and they're going to have celebrities selling them. And the only way to know what shit you actually need or don't need is if you and your kid are attuned spiritually with your own instinct and your own gut. And you just kind of trust that. And then you can start bringing in people who are of the same mindset, but in different fields. Like, I do know doctors who will be open to that conversation and be like, okay, Let's do that. And let's see if there's a way to supplement X, Y, and Z. That doesn't just dismiss it. There's a way to marry the concepts, but I think it should start with the inner knowing of the parent and the child. Yeah, I agree with that. And like Thea said, I vet through trusted people sources. The Mm -hmm. best vetting for a parent, I think, is people who you trust. People you trust. Not people who you know, (laughs) but people who you trust. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so... I don't know. I'm surrounded by friends that are therapists. So if my (laughs) children are going through a mental health challenge, then they are Black women, not just therapists, but they're healers as well. Then I call on them because I know that they also understand white supremacy and systemic and institutional oppression when it comes to the mental health system and Black people and Black children. And so they Mm -hmm. are trusted people who I can go to, to vet sources and to vet information and to give me advice that I can really stand on. And so that's why I think Mm -hmm. it's really important that as a parent, you build a village. Yes, yes, yes. That's why it's it's so important because not only do children have so much information coming at them, but parents have a lot of information coming at them. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. you have to have a way to vet that information. And it's really... Crystal helps you know, raise my kids. I help raise Crystal's yeah, kids. That's it's really through village. Like, <laughs> you know, some some of my most trusted sources on education, my children go to public school because my partner is a public school advocate. Um, so my children go to public school, but some of my most trusted sources that I get educational advice from homeschooling, unschooling parents. Mm-hmm. 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 So the, you're, they don't have to be in the same circumstance, but the way in which what their parenthood is rooted in is the same thing. And so mm-hmm. I can go to those sources for information mm-hmm. on educational information. Chemical engineer in me is like, <laughs> Aquarius in you too. Yeah. There's some <laughs> air analyzes. I appreciate cerebral. That. There's some things that I think you can get a more concrete answer on 
What I was specifically thinking was the whole, I think you said one of Crystal's children didn't want to eat meat. Mm -hmm. So it's like, my first thought was, you don't need to eat any specific food. You need your essential vitamins and nutrients. So if you don't want to eat meat, that's fine. Just get those nutrients from somewhere else. And that's something you can Mm -hmm. like research on evidence based Mm -hmm. platforms in a sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause there is a risk if you don't know that, like, you know, like scurvy is like vitamin C deficiency. There's other like deficiency based right. diseases. So um, I'm pro also like absolutely get people you can trust. Like get my, my take is like, if someone's trying to sell you something, that's probably a red flag, but um, yeah, right. There's also sort of like trusted sources you can look to that are like science backed that can help you as well. Yeah, no, I think what ends up happening, especially if we think about it in the context of where we are in the United States, we'll use specifically who has some of the worst health outcomes mm-hmm. for a so-called, you know, um, first world country, right? We have horrible health outcomes because we do not recognize the relationship between spirit, mind, and body, right? We don't recognize that all three of those planes coexist. And so, for example... Like that example of a child who's like craving certain things, right? We're trained to start with that as a problem. The curious thing that this ties into what Crystal was saying about how we parent through curiosity is to say, that's interesting. I wonder what his body is saying and communicating. That is a very different conversation than something's wrong, something's lacking. When we do that, we're searching for the replacement, right? Immediately we're searching because we've We've identified it as something with that something is wrong. But when we say that is very interesting, it could actually be a very strong sign that his body knows something that we don't know and is communicating. And if we're curious about what that information is, we may find some bodies are producing more of some chemicals than others and they don't need that much of that. So if we give them the prescribed daily dose that everybody's supposed to have, we could be giving them too much in the cases of thyroid issues, in the cases of, you know, testosterone and different different things that we're producing all the time at different rates. And the body is craving what it needs to supplement or not supplement. But if we start with curiosity and the assumption that we can trust the body. So this Western culture also teaches us don't, you can't trust your body. Don't trust your body. Trust us. We're telling you what your body needs. Don't trust your, don't trust, you know, when you've hit a wall working out. Don't trust when this diet Thing is not working out for you. Don't trust what your body's saying. Trust us. Buy what we're selling you, right? Buy more matcha, <laughs> buy more this, whatever, right? So it's like, and it's really like, it's a very anti-body culture. It's a very anti-body, anti-notion. And I'm not like, I'm not like a, I don't want to judge, but I'm not far out there. I, I see the relationship, but I, what I found You is believe the earth before, is round. I do believe the okay. earth is round. But I believe that to encounter what before you go encounter man science, you have to have sat in your the science of your own body, spirit, and experience. And then you bring that data to the observable science that because because mankind has observable science, but we had science that was how we related to the unobservable, right? That is med- that's the meditative science. That's the that's a real thing. Like how do you how do you relate and engage what you can't observe? Science is based on observations, right? Data is based on observations. So before I can encounter that, I have to sit with my own non-observable data and bring that to the observable data and find the sweet spot. That's what I. That's what I'm pro doing. So with the vegetarian thing with my son, 
one of the one of the ways to vet a source is to get clear about your question. Hmm. Yes, right? yes, that's so, so good. So when my son was like, you know, meat doesn't feel good in my body. My question then to a doctor, his pediatrician would be, can you give me some sources for parents who are raising vegetarian children about meals and things to look out for? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. If that if that doctor or pediatrician or whoever begins to talk about why my child should eat meat, that's not a trust. That's you, not going to be the you, one. You are right. not, not going to be the one. Trusted source. So right. I have to do right. the work, which is tough in this medical system, yeah. of finding another pediatrician or going into my village and saying, "Hey, or is anybody else a meat eater and raising a vegetarian child?" Who is your pediatrician or can you give me some trusted sources to go to? Now, the internet, you know, is, it can be, it can be a vast, it can, it can be a place. Dark fantasy, you, like right. <laughs> right, right. And so you have to learn how to be your own researcher and to match things up. Like, ah, yeah. does that make sense to me? Can I find something to back this up? as well. But the first thing you have to and get go clean. into it open, like you're saying, curious, so you don't have an opinion. Yeah. Because if you do, you'll find exactly what, what you you're want looking to back for. your yeah. opinion, but you got to go into it unbiased. Yeah. And one, like one of the things that my pediatrician said in giving us resources was also be careful because what happens is sometimes when people aren't vegetarians themselves, they begin to put cheese on everything and just give it to a vegetarian. <laughs> right. So, so he was like, be careful it's of so that. that. That was good information. Because that's exactly what I was doing. <laughs> so that's good. So, oh, no meat, we'll just put cheese on it. You know what I'm saying? We just throw a lot of dairy in. Right. You, they throw a lot of dairy in. So th- that was actually really, really good information. He didn't try to convince me to have my child eat meat. It was like, okay, here's some resources, you know, for you. My next question is, at what age do you think parents should start talking about difficult subjects such as sexuality? consent, and racism? Okay. I love this question. I love this question too. First of all, I don't want parents to look at these as difficult subjects. It's the, it's the, wor- it's the world it's we live life. in. It's life. Mm-hmm. It's the world that we live in. Because if you look at it as difficult, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think you start addressing these topics when children have questions. Now, in my house... I think from birth, I was talking about systemic and institutional oppression, white supremacy, racism. That those words are just in my house all the time. But I just think that when when kids have questions, then you begin to answer them with age appropriate language. We're sexual beings. We're, we come here as sexual beings. Mm-hmm. That's just yeah. the truth of it. So. When they have questions. And it's interesting because, you know, I'm a doula. So I watch births on, you know, Instagram and videos all the time. And my now nine-year-old has been watching births since the age of three. So he doesn't, it wasn't a sexual thing to him, Mm -hmm. but he was like, oh, I love when the head pops out. That's my favorite part. I love the first time when the head pops out. (laughs) And so now he has an understanding of birth that I didn't have, that I didn't grow Mm -hmm. up with. You know, he sees it as like this beautiful, amazing thing and not uh, those parts of our bodies as something to be hidden, something to be shamed, but something that can do something really, really amazing, you know? And then came the question, well, how did the baby get inside of her? 
you know? Mm-hmm. And so, or how did the baby get inside of them? Then I answer that with age appropriate language. And there are tons of books out there. Sonia Renee Taylor yeah. has written great books <laughs> about, um, about how to talk to your children uh, with appropriate language at, you know, certain ages. So there's tons of information, especially like with race. I mean, I talk to my children about blackness more than I talk to my children about race. I think white parents need to talk to their children about race. I talk to my children about blackness and black culture, which is how we move, how we talk, the foods that we eat, our history, how we move forward, how we evolve. Race is about white supremacy and systemic and institutional oppression. Those are two very different conversations, right? And so I talk to my children a lot about blackness and our history. Now, race can come up in that, but I'm always centering the conversation in our culture and our power and not who we are in relation to white people. That's the difference between having a conversation about race and having a conversation about culture. Having a conversation about race is who we are in relation to white people. Having a conversation about culture is what we've created and who we are in relation to ourselves. I like that. How about you, Thea? So, no, I I, I agree. That's my answer, is that um, you have the conversation when it's brought up organically. It could come up through the kid. It could come up like in your gut, like, hmm, like I'm feeling like, Mm-hmm. It might be the time, but I think trusting it. A lot of what we're saying goes back to the parents getting back to trusting themselves and their children and their bodies. And this is funny because the more advanced we become, the more complicated we make this when literally this has been happening since the beginning of time and folks have clearly survived it and we're here. So it's not super complex. What's what's happened is capitalism has created this big question mark between our ability to relate as parent and child and our ability to grow as community and fill that question mark with a bunch of like fucking coupons and advertisements. And so the truth is you would answer it when it came up. If we had no tech and no experts and none of this, and we were just out in the woods living with our kid and they were like, dad, mom, you know, parent, loved one. This is, I was thinking about this. I saw this in the woods today and I was wondering what you thought about this. And that's exactly how the shit happens now. If you remove all the stuff, right? That's still the way it happens. They encounter it in the wild of the world and we have to answer it then. So the, the worst thing to do is to not answer it because then that question doesn't go away. They're going to seek that answer through other sources. And you want to be one of the sources, if not the first source they stop at. And if you squash the question asking or you shame it or you give off any signal that you're panicked about it, then you're going to lose your audience. <laughs> and I will say, you know, it also comes from spending time with your kids. Like we have movie night and there are also shows that me and my kids watch together. So like one of the shows was Blackish and all kinds of topics would come up on Blackish. And so, you know, I remember the other day I was rewatching it and the episode of Diane getting her period came on and my nine year old was like, what's the period? Why is she so mean? And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, we're having this conversation today. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, we yeah. had the conversation, but that's another way, like actually spending time with your kids and noticing like, you know, my now 13 year old, when he was 11, it was like bad time and it was prolonged and prolonged. And then at 13, it was like, oh, can I get some Dove men's soap? Oh, Gigi, can you buy me some cologne for Christmas? Hmm. Now I'm not going to, you know, is your child spending a little bit more time in the bathroom than usual, especially if they're a boy? Are you finding socks under the bed? You don't have to say what's happening, but that's a cue that 
you may maybe time for the conversation. I would add to, um, I like what you said, Crystal, that it needs to be a continuing conversation like that oh, absolutely. shifts mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. age. My mother, I'm going to say her parents did not teach her about not just sexuality, but like anatomy, right? And so there's a lot of things about mm-hmm. her own body that she didn't understand. She mm-hmm. said, I'm not going to let it be that way for my children. So from That's birth, beautiful. Um, she taught us from like, there was nothing about appropriate though. She's a nurse. She taught like in nurses standard. The medical terms. Nurses? The medical terms. Nurses? Nurses kids? Nurses be like, this is your penis. Mm-hmm. Like, no, yeah, yeah. Don't call it anything else. That's not More right. More specifically, yeah. your penis has a foreskin and you need to peel it <laughs> yes. back and wash it with soap and water whenever you shower. Because if you don't, your penis is a gland. This is good. It will release smegma. <laughs> it will get trapped That's up in there and That's it will cause nurse. an infection. That's and then nurse, you'll have man. to go to the doctor and they'll have to clean the smegma <laughs> out for you. That's a nurse. So just flip that shit. Yeah. And wipe. But the interesting flip it and wipe. thing, she'd been telling me, that, like I said, since birth, the interesting thing is that I don't really remember, the, whatever the first thing she ever told me was, like, I knew what a vagina was, all that stuff. By mm-hmm. age five, didn't remember. Like, all the stuff mm-hmm. before age five, she, she never held anything back. Don't remember. It wasn't until after then that, mm-hmm. like, the conversation started actually sticking. So that's why I do think also, mm-hmm. even if yeah. you think like, oh, I already told you, it's okay to still bring it back up later on. Yes, absolutely. And they're kids, their absolutely. minds are developing. So information is going in and out. So it takes more than one time to root the information. That's just that's just like a developmental thing, like real talk. Yeah. So next question. This is where you guys thrive. What are steps parents can take to avoid losing sight of their own needs? while raising a child. And I'll preface it by just saying like, you know, I think there's a lot of parents that you it's very unfortunate they get divorced soon after their children move out of the house, go to college or something. And it's because mm-hmm. they spent 18 years focused on the child. And it's like, when that's finally over, mm-hmm. you look back at each other and you don't recognize each other. And it's like, sometimes that's a good thing. You know, I'm pro-divorce if, the, if mm-hmm. it's really not working out. But I also <laughs> think sometimes mm-hmm. you both stop treating each other well because your focus stops being each other and yourselves when you're raising a child. Absolutely. So all relationships should expand you. Your relationship with your children is no different. So the relationship is not just meant to expand one person. It is not just meant to teach one person. It is a reciprocal relationship parent and child is a reciprocal relationship. And sometimes this is why our podcast is focused on the mother as opposed to focus on the children. Because sometimes we get a hyper vigilant focus on the child and we lose ourselves. And that hyper vigilant focus comes from the anxiety and the anxiety of your child not being safe, right? So we already talked about that earlier of like how to, what that anxiety is rooted in, right? And so you have to also remember, and this is the mantra of our podcast, that if this relationship is meant to expand me, then there are things that I'm supposed to be learning too. And I'm supposed to, and in order to see those things and notice the lessons that I'm supposed to learn, I have to have a focus on myself and my child. And the mantra of our podcast is motherhood is not the graveyard of dreams. Because if it's meant to expand you, it doesn't mean that you lose your dreams. You can dream new dreams. You can adjust your dreams. 
You can make realistic expectations when it comes to your dreams because you want to be present for your child and be present for yourself as well. No one is going to give you space as a mother because in this culture, the way that things are designed is that mothering is a sacrificial experience. If you ain't up on the cross every single day, then you are not a good mother. So you're supposed to sacrifice everything. And that is how when your child turns 18 and they leave home or whenever your child decides to leave home, you look up and you don't even know who you're looking at because you haven't grown along with the child. And so it's not supposed to be sacrificial. It's reciprocal. So it is giving, but it is also receiving. And that means that because in this culture, it's defined as sacrificial, then no one is going to give you the time. So you have to take the time. No one is going Mm -hmm. to give you the space. So you have to take the space. And if you don't know what your own dreams are, if you don't know who you are, how are you guiding someone to discover who they are as well? If you don't know what brings you joy from within yourself, not if I'm doing this for other people, this is what brings me joy. Because so often women are judged by what we do and not who we be. You have to figure out who you are and you may be a new person after this child has entered your life. And you have to take the time to discover that. That means taking time with your friends. If you have a partner, taking time with your partner. That means also taking time for yourself. Awesome. How about you, Thea? That's very tender for me. Really, really tender for me. And I think similar to what you were just saying, that is a continuous conversation for yourself because it can happen at different Mm -hmm. stages of your child's life and your life. So I had conquered that at one point. I had literally fought that war and won it and found myself falling back into that trap in a different way, in a different form within the next decade. So I think particularly, again, speaking as a mother, the only way I have found to not fall into the trap is to train myself to think of myself first and to trust that anything that is good for me will be good for my family, especially in the later years. Like my kids are teens and my last one is 18. My stepdaughter is turning 16 this year. So in these years, when they don't need me the same way, what's more important then what I'm doing for them is who I'm showing them I am mm-hmm. and who I'm showing them they could be. And so I've had to learn that the guilt I felt for wanting to do things for myself was actually me modeling for them that they're still important no matter what roles they take on in their life. I have all daughters. So whatever roles they take on, whether it's their job or motherhood or whatever, that they are still a, a person in that identity. Mm-hmm. They are a person in that role and that that person is more important than the role. And so I have to sometimes prove that to them. I travel and I do things that I used to feel so guilty about. And there's still things I'm doing and want to do that I I have to fight through that guilt for. But I remember that I have to show them who I am, not just tell them. And And at this stage, particularly, it's important that they see a woman who doesn't play small and doesn't hide from the world, you know? So I can't do that just because I love them and say, because they're my family, I will play small and hide for them. I don't think that's what they actually want from me either, though they have their own conflict with how they want me to show up. And I have my conflict with what if I don't want to show up that way. So it's still very tender, but it's an ongoing journey, particularly if you started your parenting journey around the needs of others. Can I just give some concrete tools right quick? I know. Just right quick. Okay. So Mm -hmm. concrete tools. One of the ways that you do that is outsource 
if you're able to, what you don't like to do. If you don't like to do laundry and you're able to outsource it, outsource it. If you don't like to cook and you're able to outsource it, outsource it. Because that's more time for you to focus on things and to put love into things that you actually want to do. And you'll be more energized to spend time with your children because you're not being suffocated by all of these things that everyone says a mother should do. The other thing is you are not judged by uh, how many times you are present at an event for your children. That's not necessarily a marker of good parenting. You don't have to be at every football game. You don't have to be at every practice. You don't have to come to every uh, school lunch every time they invite parents to be a marker of a good parent. My mom worked 3 p.m. to 3 a.m. and rarely was able to come to things that I did at school. But the time that we did have together was quality time. So it's not how many times she showed up, but it was what she did with the time that she had with me. I like mm-hmm. that. I think it's very important. Next question. I don't know if anyone has an answer for this one. Or really, I've, it, what I should really say is the answer is out there. and No one wants to like take action on it. Oh, God. What is this question? There are two <laughs> statistics that have me concerned for children right now. Two recent statistics. Mm-hmm. First, gun violence recently overtook car accidents as the leading cause of death in children ages 1 to 18. I think that's from the New York Times, but I'll post sources in the description. Second, Mm -hmm. there have been more mass shootings so far this year than there have been days in the year, as of the last time I checked. What steps Mm -hmm. can parents take to keep their children Mm -hmm. safe from gun violence? So the gun violence that we're seeing, the violence that we're seeing is symptomatic of what we know to be a larger issue, which is that America's history of violence is like coming to a head. And there's different leaders that we've had in our lifetime that have predicted this lack of safety in public spaces, that have predicted this type of violent upbringing. I mean, it's been predicted for a long time. As a parent, I go back to what I said before, right? Like, how you live every day with your child is the best way to not move in a way that is always afraid that something outside of your little world with your family is going to take your child from you. Now, of course, we can lobby, we can fight, we can do a whole bunch of things. But part of what made me shift my practice as a practitioner was the shooting in Uvalde. And as a mental health professional, what I knew was that the way professionals are being trained now in the field is not going to stop that. And you can flood people into mental health, and I get it, and they'll just be calming down symptoms that are showing that there's a really aggressive disease in America, which has been violent since its inception, but nobody wants to have that fucking conversation. And so for me, when I watch this, it's awful, it's terrible, it's heart-wrenching, it's also just the natural outcome of not dealing with your shit, is that it's going to come up in what we can consider these spontaneous mental health episodes that aren't mental health anymore. They're soul crises. People don't know who they are. They don't know whose they are. They don't know what is real. They don't know what is fake. It is disastrous for a psyche. This is literally watching the country have a psychotic break. And yet no one wants to call it that. And because of that, as a parent, what I do is I spiritually arm my children. You know, I I teach them to follow their instincts. I teach them to follow their gut. We do the little stuff that we need to know to be aware, but we also tune in a lot. We tune in as much as we can in this house so that whatever we have to do to judge safety in a situation, we can. And we also are building relationships around the world so that we have context for what it means to be in a nonviolent society and how we can contribute to that. 
So there is no real like answer like you're saying for it, but but we can understand the big picture of where we are and when we are in this American cycle. And we can not take for granted the time we have with our families. You can kind of like do a lot of inner work and we can fight like hell to make sure that we are advocating for safety measures. It's also very telling that they don't give a fuck how much we talk about it and that they would rather talk about a whole bunch of other shit. I mean, we know what we are and we know who they are and we have to make decisions about that. Yeah. I mean, I just concur. I, I mean, I get that. I do. I think, I don't think this is the the root cause of the problem, right? Mm -hmm. I think, I think the root cause of the problem is tied to our general obsession with guns and with making it ridiculously easy to have Mm -hmm. access to them because the truth is everyone has a bad day but your bad day is more likely to be fatal to someone including yourself if you have a gun versus if you don't right people Mm -hmm. don't talk about it a lot but um aside from mass shootings guns basically make a suicide attempt almost guaranteed to be successful. So sometimes when you own a lot of guns, the risk of death to yourself is that much higher because you might just have a really bad day one day. But um, I think for the people who are surprised when a mass shooting has happened, the smaller Mm. problem you can attempt to solve is paying more attention to your children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. Like, I think it's a moment to teach my children about hope, like, because this looks dim. Like, there are more guns in the United States than people. There are more guns in the United States than people. So it looks it looks hopeless. And so it's a moment, I think, too, to teach my children about hope and how hope is a discipline. Hope is a practice. And how, mm. and even in a moment like this, do we practice hope? What is the world that you want to see? And how did you get there? Because everything that you see around you started with an idea, started with a concept. Yeah. I I also want to offer that like Bowling for Columbine, which was done God knows how many years ago by Michael Moore, he went to Canada who had more guns than we did at that time. And he demonstrated that because gun control is a measure. I, I, I agree with that. But also you can, people having the gun doesn't necessarily mean you have that psyche. The deeper issue is how we have come to a point in this country that we have so little regard for life, period. And that has a lot to do with our obsession with things being more valuable, objects, material things being more valuable than nature, than any forms of life. Because in places like Canada, where almost every household has guns, they're not shooting people like this. This is like a Mm. psyche issue, right? This This is psychopathology and this is like, you can give people in a different place the same tool, but they will use it differently because of their psyche, right? Because of who they are, because of their value system, because of what they've been trained to think. And this country is fucking delusional. <laughs> it thinks that it is, you know, the pillar of light and it is like the leader in colonization and neo-colonization. It thinks that it, you know, rescued, you know, indigenous people. It thinks that it gave you know, Africans, a new life. It's fucking crazy and delusional. And we, you can't put guns in the hands of a delusional country. Like that is what the reality is. Yeah. That, that's a really interesting point because I'm in the South again and owning guns in the South. I mean, I'm the only person in my family, like literally we're the only household. Well, me and my sister, because she says she's married to Gandhi and they don't have a gun either. But like out of all of my cousins, she got a lot of We're cousins. the only ones who do not 
have guns. And so black people do own guns in the South. Like it is a thing, but we are not the ones doing the school shootings. So, there you go. So there so, you so go. That's, so that's a very, very interesting point. And I know how to use a gun. I have a concealed weapons permit. But yeah, that's a really, really interesting, interesting point with that about Canada. Yeah. And so when I said like paying more attention to your children, it's because to me, a lot of times the signs that something was wrong are there, but people yeah, weren't looking. Absolutely. And so one, literally just quality time. Two, just paying attention for any negative signs and just seeing, is this trending in a certain way? Three, in general, for any parent, any race, anywhere, teaching your children like healthy coping mechanisms for stress, for anger, teaching them like that, how to not be so easily influenced by whatever they see on TV or the internet, which is like more prolific now, I think also just is something that can be done. Yeah. I want to expand that too. Like I think, I think pay attention to our children. That parent can't see everything if they're also working and feeding and, and housing and clothing. We all need to pay attention to our children because we come into contact with them, you know, whether we're teachers or whether whatever we are, we come into contact with all types of children. But this idea that I only have to pay attention to mine is not safe, right? The idea was I pay attention to everything because this is all ours, but this whole mind yours, like, because I know parents who, if their kid committed suicide, they were like, I missed something, but how could you catch everything? <laughs> That's not, that can't just be you, right? It has to be us. Yeah. These are ours. Yeah. There's ours. And that is, again, a Eurocentric mindset is yours and mine versus ours, right? Like we need to get back to values that actually preserve life. And those values are not in European culture. They're just not there. And if you see something in your child that a lot of times as a parent, you want to turn away because it's like you feel guilty. You feel like you caused that. And Mm -hmm. so you have to be willing to say, it might not be about me. It may be about me, but Mm -hmm. we can evolve. We can change. We can heal, you know? And we need somebody else to come in here and help us. And help us. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Hopefully this is a lighter question, but thank you. I think we've all seen examples of someone parenting a child in a way that didn't sit right with us. Do you think it's appropriate for people to comment on someone else's (laughs) parenting? Thea, I'm laughing, y'all, because Thea turned her video off. (laughs) I'm trying to help. I'm trying to help. If so, meaning if you think it's okay to comment on someone else's parenting methods, how can we do so in a respectful manner? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people take it people take it so personal. It's really hard to do in a in a respectful manner because, you know, your parenting for a, is is rooted in who you are. And so people It's very really, vulnerable. It's very vulnerable, so people really take it personal. I mean, I have seen it go down in mom groups, like go down in mom groups, you know what I'm saying? People take it so personal. I mean, I, you know. <sighs> I mean, here's the thing, though. Let's be real. We're going to have to joint this answer a little bit. <laughs> okay. Because wh- you can't know the full context. Right. And this is the problem with making all I'm the a, comments. I'm going to number is, it out. Number one, you can't yeah. know the full context. You can't know the full context. So go in knowing I don't know everything. The second thing I would say is ask the parent if they need anything. Instead of coming at the parent about, you know, you think you should be doing this to your child. Be like, do you need anything? Is there anything I can do to help? Because most likely that parent is not doing what we think they should be doing 
because they're doing the best they can with what they have and something's falling through the gaps. So if I didn't do the thing about their parenting, but I asked about the parent and if they need anything, like I'll see a parent struggling with a kid in in a story and I'll be like, do you want me to hold that for you while you figure this out? That's a lot going on. You know, they'll be like, oh my God, like nobody says anything. They just see me like going crazy with the kid, right? So ask the parent if they need some help. Okay. You know, I mean, if you see somebody getting like beat down, you got to do what you got to do. But the, but really some of it is just like preference and parents are really struggling. And so you don't know the full context. And if you're going to say something, offer help to the parent. That's what I would say. I would say the best language that Thea's ever given me is be curious, not accusatory. Mm, I like it. You know? And don't associate the behavior with the kind of person the parent is. Because, I mean, it's some stuff. I'm going to keep it real, Dion. It's some stuff that just went down in this house that if it was some videos. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. And if you want to come up in here and be like, well, you know what you should do. I'll be like, but you, did you you know this? I'm not going to always act like I was a conscious parent. You know what I'm saying? Like I was parenting in a conscious way. It was, yeah, it was a journey. Sometimes Chris will say, my ashe is not high. Some that days day. my ashe is not high, right? And today it's is, low. I told you when we started out, today my ashe is not high. So what am I doing? I'm tapping out on motherhood. There's stuff in there to eat. They have plenty of stuff to occupy them. I'm tapping out. You know what I'm saying? So be curious. You know, I was, when I first started out as a parent, I had gotten moved across the country, got married, found out I was pregnant. Barack Obama was elected president of the United States. And I, I began raising a preteen two weeks into my marriage, Mm. a middle schooler. And I was high functioning with depression. You know what I'm saying? Oh boy. If if somebody could have saw, (laughs) somebody could have saw people like, oh my gosh, she's abusive, all this other stuff. But nobody was curious. Nobody, nobody asked. Nobody nobody was curious. You know, Mm -hmm. so so that's why I say like, if you could have a camera, you know, some days it was like, what the fuck are you thinking? You know? I told you, da 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 Am I proud of that? Absolutely not. I cringe when I think about putting my children through that, right? But now I understand that there that there was so many other things going on around that. Yeah. I would say the third thing too, the third thing would be sit with your own trigger. Because if you feeling so moved that you feel like you got to go over there and say something, like who yelled at you? that you haven't healed from. Like that's a, that could be your own shit. So also you better deal with that before you go over there. Cause some of them parents, they may not have degrees in psychology, but they know how to push a button and break you down quickly. Oh, so your mama did that. Oh, you know, mama, mama, it'd be a lot. And you don't want that. They will read you. Don't, don't let degrees, no degree. It don't matter. You will get your feelings hurt. Mm-hmm. So that would be three. Like, sit with it and see if that's triggering something for you. There we go. Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> next question. When I was younger, one of the major challenges for children was cyberbullying. Right now, I think a big issue is feeling pressure to constantly perform for people online. There are children and adults, actually, that are committing crimes on TikTok and Instagram Live for likes, making comments that will Hmm. get them kicked out of school. And there are influencers that in a way become addicted to their viewership rates, where Mm -hmm. when views go down and the actions they take to bring them back up don't work, 
they have a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. Do you have advice on setting boundaries for children in the age of social media and considering that we'll likely be more connected as technology advances, advice for helping them develop a healthy relationship with technology that they can take into adulthood? So I got a quick answer. I cheat. So in my house, you know, I have, we have four children. I have a 25 year old, a 22 year old. And so they are on social media, the same social media apps as my 13 year old. Mm-hmm. And so they will let me know. Oh girl, that's good. Anything is out of bounds. So I cheat. So I recommend if you got a, a young cousin, <laughs> you know, get you a young gun. Get you a young gun up in them up in them TikTok streets because I'd be on TikTok like a boomer. Like what? This is oh, I got messages. So yeah, so I I cheat, but I I think the bigger thing is again conversations with your children. It goes back to that because even if you're following them on those social media apps, they're gonna get they they can get a dummy account or just whatever. So it really goes back to having conversations about with your children about who they are, who they want to be. And as Thea said, don't be in denial. They're probably going to make a mistake on there. Yeah. Oh God. (laughs) Oh my God. Many mistakes. Mm -hmm. I I think it's important as parents to have this conversation to not demonize it. I feel like I struggle. I don't enjoy it the way they enjoy it. I I didn't live my life in tech the Mm -hmm. way they did. And so you don't have to be careful not to judge what is really the equivalent to them to riding a bike was for me, you know, or going to the um, club or going to the club. Um, at the same time though, I'm very, I teach my kids about shadow and light so that everything in nature has duality. Everything has polarity. So everything has its light and everything has a shadow. So let's have a conversation about what is good about social media and let's be real about what's toxic about it. And how do you recognize that in your body, right? Like, do you feel sleepy? Do you feel drained? Do you feel like you start to doubt yourself? Do you still feel like you start to, you know, look at your food different, look at your body different? So it's a great way of connecting the tech back to the body is how is your body responding to the tech and using that to decipher whether you're engaging in the shadow of tech or in the light of tech, right? And so we've been having that conversation. And sometimes, you know, it's scary because they've gone out there and they've been like in front of those screens and I... I know it's too much. I know they need to pull back, but I need them to know when that is. I need them to know when they hit that point. So if I were to take it too soon, they don't feel it internally when they hit that point. And after hitting it a couple times, they start to, on their own, curb it. It's going to be a beast for the foreseeable future, for sure, um, unfortunately. And we're also in this world where like illusions and things that are fake are being given the same credence as what is real and human and natural. They're being given the same value system, the same worth. And that is super, super scary because then where's the grounding? Where's the rooting? How do you know the earth is beneath your feet at all? You know, but we're headed there. We're already there. Also a lot of nature. Make sure your kids have a plant they take care of or a puppy or something that is actually a real tangible thing that they can touch, um, because I think that's also very important. And I also teach them how to vet things on TikTok, well, not just on social media, period. My 13 year old is notorious for telling me something. And I'll be like, you saw that on TikTok? And he'll be like, no. Well, you see it. <laughs> go, go where, what are your sources? Show me, show me where they you saw like it. They don't like that, though. And I said, I'm not, I'm not judging you, but I just, I'm teaching you how to vet information. 
I think that's important for everybody. Yeah. Everybody, yeah. all ages. Yes. Well, I have, yeah, because I have to do that with my mom too. Uh, my mom on Facebook. too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Caribbean. For me, it tends to be WhatsApp. Oh, yes. Yes. But. Yeah. I I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to, you know, disparage anybody. But that's my that's my lived experience. But um, people can use information yeah. to hurt you yeah. or get you to waste your money yeah. or get you to hurt others. Knowing how to vet a source be skeptical like ask like is there an ulterior motive in presenting this information could you be presented with factual information that's altered in a way to elicit an emotional response right why is it that this viral video is only a short clip what was the whole story we have ai now yes it's let me can i just say here yeah this is why though i think we're getting to a world, this is my soapbox before I do what I'm about to do, is that we're getting to a world where wherever you go, there you are. You're going to have to come back to the body and the natural world. You're going to have to, to know what's real. You're going to have to get back attuned with your own body because like you're saying, they're not, even if they go look for the information, it can look so real. It can look so real that they don't know. So we cannot intellect our way through this. This is a, this is a deep, divine feminine embodiment time. You got to get in your body and be like, what did you feel? What is your body telling you about this information, about this video, about this? And not just like your emotional reaction or your trauma reaction, but like get guttural, get underneath there, put your feet in the dirt. And like, what am I experiencing? Because once Trump opened the door to making anything somebody says can be true, and once all them bots got on those social media. And once all that started happening and once a whole elections, once all that happened, the psyche, y'all, I keep telling y'all, it's a fragile fucking thing. It's a fragile thing. The psyche of a group, of a country, of a place is very fragile. And so right now in ours, nobody knows what's real. Here's a good thing about it though. We've needed to get back in touch with our bodies for a very long time. That's also going back to the health stuff. So we needed to be able to listen and hear and be intuitive and get back to our natural instincts but we're going to have to do it sooner than later, especially because we are already there. We are already in the other false world that they've already been building for quite some time. And I try to, I, I remind my kids that AI has to pull from humans. It, it, it pulls yeah. from a human. So for now, content is created by humans. Even, even if in the future it comes up with its own thing, that data is informed by human experience. Mm -hmm. So, but if the human experiences start to be informed by the by the, you see what I, you see where we're going? Like if it cycles, yeah. <laughs> eventually, yeah. there's not an actual human experience if everybody's experience is in the illusion. So now, even what looks like a human experience was rooted. It's kind of like what we talk about, like the conditioning that happens in like school environments is an example of that. I remind them of that because eventually you have to get back to the human. Yeah, you have to get back to the human, and it hopefully it's human. Because my point is, like, if humans forget they're human, then it's not a human experience anymore. It's humans having an experience, but is it the perfect example is the um, mutant message down under, right? Is this book about a woman who goes to um, Australia and she's ends up through this series of events on a walkabout with um, an Aboriginal tribe there. And this is their gift to her is to take her on this walkabout. And the way they move is so vastly different. And she's like, but we're all humans. And they're like, no, 
you're not human. <laughs> and she's like, what do you mean? She's, they, they, they're like, no, we call you fear people. And how they distinguish mm. fear people from humans, because humans can survive in the natural world. Humans can live in the natural world. They can eat in the natural world. They can drink in the natural world. They can survive it. Humans can. That's what they say. But fear people are attached to their things, which is where the fear comes from. They have to drink a lot of water. That was very interesting. It was like they, you know how we're always told you got to drink this amount of much water. Every They were like, the fear people have to drink a lot of water and they can't, they really just can't eat from the earth and be okay. There's like their bodies now don't even really take real food. So like, my point is that like, what is the human experience? Like the more you take it away from nature and put it into this like nebulous thing, the less it is human, the more it's becoming something else. It's becoming, I don't know what experience that'd be. So if they do a certain number of cycles of this living, then eventually they're not drawing from the human experience. They're drawing from like a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of the human experience. Does that make sense? And each copy gets less clear and less accurate. That makes sense. But then it's like, as a human, how do you know when you say tap into your body that what you're tapping into is real? That's my point. For us, right? But you're but you're saying if the AI is drawing from a human experience, right? We don't know that the AI will be tapping from a copy of a copy of a copy by that time in the future of the human experience. It could be copying mimicry of that experience, but not the authentic experience. When I say that, my intention is to remind them that they are the real thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, but, you we, know, did, AI we, did, is... we rabbit hole. That was a big because that's a that's a real no that's a real the, one of the things Spirit has told me in the last couple of years is you're going to have to create. I told Crystal this places where people can remember that they're real. Something I wanted to add is um, because I'm a podcaster, right, and I'm attempting to grow my audience, and I I know people who are influencers. I follow a lot of YouTubers who are super popular. <sighs> If you pay attention, a lot of YouTubers, once they get super popular, at some point, they have a mental breakdown, right? And there's things like cancellations, too, which, like, I have mixed thoughts on cancellations, but I do think there's a true side to the damage that has. I think as a parent, I'm not a parent, so this is my, you know, un not fully qualified recommendation. It's very important to instill a strong sense of self yes, in your child yes, that absolutely. other people's opinions cannot you can reference them but they they but they never that's diminish it. you that's it. yeah that's and it. i say that because back 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 in the day maybe even before before me you might have a couple neighborhood bullies then you might have you know a school of a thousand people 300 were talking trash about some embarrassing photo of you on facebook we're now officially in a world yeah. where you can, as a teenager, build up mm-hmm. anywhere between 20,000 and 5 million followers. If 1% of mm. 5 million people decide they hate you or want to trash talk mm. you, right? Don't judge me for doing the quick math, but no, that's it's like 50,000 people, right? 1% of um, 5 million is 50,000 people. If 50,000 people hate you, I'm a confident person reasonably mm. i don't know if i can handle the yeah. hatred or yeah. the just yeah. the jokes the, the clout of making yeah. fun of me yeah. of fifty thousand people yeah right that's real i also remember when i was younger there is social status some social credit in school that comes from 
having witnessed the fight that happened that morning Mm. or knowing the details about, you know, why these two people broke up or something. And so Mm. you might even realize you're like a little too addicted to your phone. Mm. But when you try to delete the app or take a break, you realize your friends are talking about stuff Mm. that you missed. And you feel Mm. like you need to get back in to not miss out on the latest meme, the latest drama, the latest Twitter argument. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody... Right. Children, but also adults are having the breakdowns too. need to recognize like you are a whole person before anyone ever has an opinion on you. And um, no amount of Mm. likes or dislikes can take that away from you. The other scary thing is that people do tie their careers to this. Yeah. And the scary thing with that is that then people don't have to do something to dislike you to hurt your feelings. The fact that you lost 50,000 subscribers, 50,000 people just said, um, I'm interested in other content right now, can tear someone apart. Yeah. And I think similarly, just recognize, sure, this is the job you like. You can still get another job. Yeah. You can still create another influencer platform. You are not dictated by this specific mm-hmm. number of followers always rising. Yeah. And I think that's something that unless you like are in it in a sense, like me following a bunch of YouTubers mm-hmm. being making a podcast, you don't necessarily see that that's becoming a massive yeah. insecurity oh, for wow. people online. I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, that is. Woo. Yeah. But also bringing that to that, what you're saying adds to it. That's why I'm telling parents, like I had this moment, my daughter just turned 18 and I was like, she didn't always have the best, you know, shoes. She didn't get every single thing she wanted, but I swear to God, she knows who the fuck she is. And if that's all I did, if that's all I did as her mom (laughs) was make sure she knows who she is and she's not apologizing for it in this world with these Mm -hmm. things we fighting, that's a good ass job. I did that. I can teach her the other stuff on the back end. I can teach her, you know, how to drive and how to do these things. I can teach those things. But what I cannot get back is the time I needed to sew Mm -hmm. into her who the fuck she is, you know, and they all, which is challenging because they're. They all have their sense of self. It's strong up in this house. It's very strong. So, but but I didn't take that from them. Yeah. And and that is like based on what you're saying, you know, because they did feel that. They did feel one 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 in particular more than the others. The others can kind of take it or leave it sometimes. But that one would get really involved in it. And she would build all her relationships through them. And it was scary. And it's still a little scary. But she's learning when to stop and start. And that comes from that sense of self you're talking about. So I 1,000%. Everything you said, 1,000%. Oh, I hate how dark and scary things could be. (laughs) Yeah. So my next question is, um, are there any resources you recommend parents look into for things like emotional support, child care, child development programs, or just something you think parents need that they don't always realize they should seek out? Okay. If you are having a child, if you're thinking about having a child, uh, one resource that I would recommend is evidence-based birth for all things childbirth related. It's evidence-based. So it can help you cipher through all of the discussions around best practices and things like that. Um, Another group, particularly for Black parents that I uh, recommend is a Facebook group called Consciously Parenting for the Culture. And the reason I recommend this group is, you know, I'm on a conscious parenting journey. And also I recommend this group because 
it has so many resources in the group in terms of child development. So like brain development, emotional development and all the and all that at a particular age. I think it's a great 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 resource for that. You may not be ready to jump into that because it is about conscious parenting, but it's also a group that has a lot of grace, gives a lot of grace and space and understands that conscious parenting is a journey, not a destination, and everybody and even if you didn't start out conscious parenting but you want to transition to it, it's a group that has grace and space for that because that's called Consciously Parenting for the Culture. And lastly, I would recommend books by Sonia Renee Taylor that are, I can't think of the titles right now, but I can get them to you that are, mm-hmm. um, that give you language to talk to your child um, about their body, their sexuality and um, sex. So those would be resources that I recommend for parents. And also I encourage everyone to please watch our platform because we are going to be developing things for like right now we are mom-centered, black mom-centered, black mom-focused, but we will be developing things that help that that help black moms not lose themselves. Like the question that you asked, how do you not lose yourself in the parenting journey and not bury your dreams underneath motherhood? So those are my sources that I recommend. Awesome. And yeah, for the books, you know, shoot them my way. I'll put them yeah, in the description. Yeah, I will. For sure. All right. We made it to the last question. Okay. Is there something I haven't asked that you think is essential for current parents to know? No, I think we covered so much. I don't think that there's anything. I appreciate you inviting us to your platform. I think it was a pretty in-depth conversation. So there's nothing that I can think of. Awesome. I'd like to thank you for coming on. For those of you listening, Thea had to hop off to go be a mama. (laughs) But I'd like to thank Crystal and Thea for coming on to the show. Before we conclude, can you um, tell us where the audience can find you? You kind of did at the beginning. The other option is I usually tell people if you, you don't want people finding you, you can promote a charity that you want to shout out or some other organization. Well, you can find us at uh, uh, www.dimblackmamas.com. That's D-E-M, blackmamas.com. That's our website. And the links to all our social media uh, platforms are on there. Uh, We are mostly on Instagram, like on on Instagram. We on Facebook and on Twitter, but we like really on Instagram. (laughs) And you can find us there at Dim Black Mamas Podcast, D-E-M, Black Mamas Podcast. Mamas is M-A-M-A-S. M-A-M-A-S podcast. So you can find us there. And we also have a Patreon and you can just type in them Black Mamas in Patreon. But all those links are on our website and all those links are also in our bio on our Instagram page. So come on over, see what's going on. It's fun over there. We have a good time. Awesome. Thank you all for listening. Don't forget to leave a review and check out my feedback survey in the description. To be a guest on the show, hit me up at AdultingHS on Facebook or Instagram or at AdultingHS at gmail.com if you want to email me. With that said, this has been Adulting Horror Stories. I'll see you in the next one. A mother of four. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Recording with some mamas now. Yes. Boo. You got to really okay. understand.